The yeah. technology is designed to distract people. Mm. They are that your attention is the most valuable commodity available at the moment. And, you know, to the point where companies like Netflix are now touting sleep as one of their biggest competitors because it's the only space left for attention. I'm here today with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's good to hear. We're also here with a very special guest from B Kindred, Penny Lacasso. How are you, Penny? I'm great. Thanks for having me today, Tim. Well, and David. <laughs> you're more than welcome. That's it. We've been excited to have you on. Uh, I think mostly I, I just wanted to put a little experiment together and put the two of you in a room. I think I said to you earlier that uh, a, a commonality between the two of you is that you both walk the walk. So it's kind of interesting, I think, for our listeners to have uh, another shining example, perhaps, of uh, what it's like to put measures into practice that help you flourish. So if that's a succinct way of describing it. Oh, I like it, the perhaps. word flourish. I haven't <laughs> yeah. used that. I might, I might borrow See, it. See, this and was going to be one of my, my first questions is why did you pick happy as a word mm. when it appears you're talking about flourishing? Sorry, we're <laughs> straight into it. <laughs> yeah, because it's like, ooh, you use the word happy, but no, no, the depth of all the things you say is flourishing. I like the word flourishing. Why did I pick the word happy mm. in terms of the work that I do? Mm. What? That's a really good question. I've never been – I picked happiness because I think that it's something for so many people that seems aspirational these days. And it's something I – this is going to sound – I don't want to sound like a wanker, but I've never really struggled with happiness. But other people do. Yeah. And, and I yeah. think and, – and I thought, well, if I'm not struggling with it, what can I learn from that that may be helpful for others? And, mm. I, and I know how happiness makes me feel. Mm. I know how many people in the world are aspiring for it. So for me, using happiness as a baseline to you know set a stake in the ground of what I was trying to achieve made logical sense. But what's interesting about happiness is how it polarises people and I think what's also been interesting about use, ha using happiness for me is what's important is how you define happiness. Mm. And my definition of happiness, I always say, is not skipping down the street painting rainbows. I mean, that's bullshit. That's not real life. My definition of happiness is having the skills, the resources and the support around you to be able to ride the wave of every emotion that life throws at you because the reality is that shit stuff will happen. You can't control that. And knowing that you'll be able to come out the other side just a little better than what you were before. And I'm interested in how that resonates with you, David, in the context of the conversation we had before we turned the microphone on, because clearly you're someone who's had to work out your own happiness and, and define that for yourself in the, in the context of the, the challenges you faced in your life. Yeah, see, that's why I found you using the word happy. It was my first, I'm going to ask this question, I've got to ask the question, because when I started watching your TED Talks and other stuff, it was like, okay, this person's talking about flourishing. They're using the word happy because it's the word people know. Yeah. But it's also such now a loaded word. You either have to go with it being loaded or try and avoid it like the plague. Mm. And Agree. I, I would say, again, having studied too much philosophy, the reason I picked the word flourish is because if you flourish, you'll probably be happy. But if you aim to be happy, there's no guarantee you'll flourish. Yeah, if we talk Maslowian, you know, hierarchy here, mm. if we're going to put the foundations in place, physical needs, security needs, love, belonging, esteem, setting all them up is pretty much going to guarantee 
that happy ends up being the cherry on top. It's the outcome, because, not the action. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, I think that's good. And it's, it's interesting because the other word that's kind of really resonated with me recently is joy. You know, I read something last week that said uh, the ancient Egyptians, uh, when they were about to go into the afterlife, used to ask themselves two questions in order to enter the afterlife and determine what that would look like. And the first question was, did you have joy in your life and did you bring joy to others? And I was like, I think that's kind of a really nice baseline in which to understand the sort of life that you want to create. Mm. And automatically by asking the two questions there about self and then what did you do for others? Yeah. Because, yeah. damn, I mean, really, what is the point if you're just acting in service of yourself? I don't, I don't know about you, but for me, that's not where the fulfilment comes. I well, think that's to me where the novelty with philosophy really came to a screeching halt. That at a certain point, as much moral philosophy as you learn, you can become as reasonable a version of yourself as you can, and then you hit the wall of, and now what? <laughs> because you realise the other ninety nine point nine percent of human beings haven't studied years of moral philosophy. So if you want to have an impact on them, don't bury them in moral philosophy. You need to show them what functioning looks like, what functioning well looks like. So the moral philosophy can inform how to function, but it's showing people what effective functioning looks like that then provides something that they can mimic or you know learn and then evolve to suit themselves. So at some point, if you can't transcend self, you just get lost in your own, well, your own navel, basically. Yeah. At what point, Penny, do you, because I think I've heard you say a similar thing, that at what point did you learn to lead by example or be an example for other people, for them to pick up this um, approach to happiness or approach to, to flourishing? Because I've heard you say that as well. Yeah. Again, really interesting question that I've not been asked before. I never thought people would be interested in the way that I live my life. Like most people don't think they're that interesting. That's all right. I saw exactly the same thing when Tim said, let's do a podcast. Yeah, like, exactly. You know, yeah. I'm kind of interesting when I talk in lectures, but I can't imagine I'm interesting otherwise. I was intrigued as soon as you walked in the room. <laughs> yeah, that's because I'm wearing my Blind Insights t-shirt and how many people walk around with themselves on their own t-shirt? <laughs> <laughs> so the mass ego or can't see the looks. Can't see the looks, haven't got the ego. So I think um, I've always been someone that I've always loved helping people realise their potential. And I think what I started to realise a little bit later in life was that the best way to do that, and especially when you have children, I think there's no greater, um, you know, awareness around this, that children don't listen to what you say, they watch what you do. Precisely. And and when I had my son and I started, you know, about when he was sort of two or three, which was when all the changes in, in my life started to really happen, and I started to realise that it didn't matter what I said, it was all about my actions. Mm. I use that as a basis to say I need to significantly change my life in order to show him what's possible and also to set a good example. Um, that was the catalyst for change. So that was where that sort of um, process started. And then when I turned my life upside down and um, and I was sharing a lot of it on LinkedIn and social media because like, we're talking five years ago, I'm not as invested in social media as I used to be. I actually do a lot less of it and it's quite strategic what I do now 
and focused. I don't try and be on all things and I actually think less of it is, is actually better. But back then I was sharing a lot of the journey um, and the fact that I had no, no idea what I was doing um, and I was very open about that with people but I was saying, you know what, I'm, I'm pursuing a life that brings me, you know, joy, fulfilment and enables me to flourish. I don't know what that looks like but I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and make it happen. And I think being so vulnerable and honest in that, I had no idea – how that would impact other people. And I think that the what I've realised is the braver you are and the more willing you are to be real in, in that vulnerability, um, the more that in, that's the most powerful way to inspire action in others. So that was, you know, it started to happen probably in the first 12 months of the journey. And I think the most profound thing for me was that I had all these people emailing me and reaching out and saying, oh, my God, how have you achieved so much in 12 months' time, you know, after leaving such a successful career? And I felt like an absolute fraud because I was making no money. You know, I was in the first 12 months of my business. I was making no money. I was experimenting and trying all of this different stuff. And I was like, hang on a second, all these people are watching me on social media thinking that I'm successful and I just want to clarify. So I actually got on LinkedIn and said, here's the thing, if you're watching me and your definition of success is financially based, then please don't follow me anymore because I am not making a dollar. And like doing that on LinkedIn, which was back, you know, even more professional back then, was could have been career suicide. But mm. people came out and said, oh my God, finally someone being honest about what it's like to be in a startup for 12 months mm. and the fact that, you know, you do have no idea what you're doing and you're not making any money. Mm. So I think, um, you know, every time I've stepped into vulnerability in a way that seemed crazy, I've realised how much it can help others step into fear. Yeah, it's interesting you make the point about when your son was born, what example you were going to set for him to, you know, pattern against. When I first started teaching university in 2002 and you realise – most of the class don't want to learn the material. <laughs> <laughs> but you're talking undergrads, yeah? yeah. Postgrads are a little bit different. Yeah, well, again, 18-year-olds, yeah. 19-year-olds. Yeah. Most of them will learn a little bit, but the only way they're going to listen to you is if you seem like a credible grown-up as opposed to an academic. They don't want to know how much you know. They want to know if you function in a way they can respect. And the minute you realise if you function in a way they can respect, then you can teach them quite a bit of the material. But you've I'm got to sort out the respect issue before you can teach them. Yeah. But, I mean, you, you're a shining example of living and breathing this, clearly. You know, you, you, the intentional adaptability from, from what you've told me thus far that you've employed off the back of being disenfranchised with a system that was not enabling you to realise your potential mm. um, is pretty profound. So how have you sort of, you know, how do you build this credibility? How do you live and breathe this stuff? I, I suppose that's the thing to me, all you can ever be is an exemplar. So if you say it, you better have already done it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't really say it until you've lived it for a while and can a minimum show people what it is you're talking about. And that's why sometimes it's hard with the podcast to go, you know, you can tell the audience all about something, but they'll never get to watch you doing it. They'll never get to see for sure that what you're saying is founded in how you function every day. Mm. So you have to hope, well, if there's enough consistency that on trust, they'll go, well, there must be something that stays consistent at the core. Yeah. I suppose the thing, you know, part of how I ended up the way I ended up was realising that you know, when I started to learn to use a cane, the faster you did the hard, frightening work of going, I'm relying on a piece of aluminium to find everything to keep me alive wow. and just suck the fear away and go, well, fear is fuel. You know, Your hands shaking is fuel. Butterflies is fuel. Realising you just had a near miss with something because 
Yeah, all right. Heart in your mouth for a sec. Put it back where it belongs. Slow your heart rate and convert, you know, the adrenaline or whatever else into forward momentum. So every emotion is just fuel. So Positive or negative, you know, basically equal levels of fuel. So for someone who's been blind all their life, what 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 is the biggest fear for you now and, and how do you deal with that? I think the biggest fear is I get something wrong with a cane one day yeah. and either fall or make contact with something and destroy a hand. Because your hands are so important? They're everything. Yeah. The whole interaction with the world. Okay, I can listen to stuff, I can smell stuff. Yep. You know, but you've got to get close enough to pick it up to taste it and touch it. So, you know, I think the underlying fear that if anything monumental ever happened to my hands, that's the true holy shit moment. Yeah. Where I'd wonder if the entire carefully, slowly, gradually put together system, that would be the ultimate test of the system, is what happened if you know, a hand was out of action for a month. Mm. The idea of a hand being gone is just, well, again, brain just says, no, don't think about that. <laughs> if it happens, then you're allowed to think about that. Till then, no. Mm. It just opens too big a can of worms. And, and I don't want to diminish your fear at all, but there's something in my gut, even just in the last half an hour of knowing you, that I reckon you would work out a way. <laughs> just, you don't seem like someone that would, as challenging as that would be, I, I kind of get the feeling that you might be someone that might be able to find a way. Put it this way, I would be the most annoying person for my prosthetic isn't good enough. <laughs> Make it do more. I can't do yoga with this prosthetic. I can't do a handstand with this prosthetic. Make my prosthetic better. Yeah, I can imagine I'd be a pain in the ass. This is a good segue, though, because I, I know that <laughs> it's strange segue, but I know that Penny is reasonably in touch with these kind of human-based technological advances. You know, I've heard you talk a little bit about uh, not necessarily prosthetics, but things that are enabling uh, more people to do everything. Oh, and I don't know whether you're familiar with this, David, but one of the things that I saw that, that blew me away um, for people with um, disabilities and, you know, being blind uh, when I was at Singularity at NASA was that, you know, they're now using thermal imaging plates in people's mouths to enable people yeah. to see things when they've never been able to see before. And, you know, I've got a father with a disability. He's not blind, but he's um, he's severely disabled from a, a back injury when he was 18. And anything from a technology perspective that enables people greater mobility or, you know, the ability to see when they haven't been able to see, like, mm. I just, it blows my mind. And it's like, you can't not do this. This is freaking phenomenal. But Microsoft is probably a great example of a company that's doing some unbelievable things with technology and working with people with disabilities. Like you constantly see um, Satya Nadella on LinkedIn and the stuff that they're doing um, blows my mind, you know, and just makes me happy because I just think that if someone could have taken away um, the pain that my father has and, you know, um, the constant falling and broken toes and, you know, it would have fundamentally shifted his life. And unfortunately, he's now 77, so we probably won't get there in his lifetime. But if it avoids it for, for someone in the next generation, yeah. thank God. And that's, that's the joy. big thing, realising that you're going to be the you know the rabbit that tests the technology. Yeah. And it may not be real flash. So in the case of Microsoft, you know, they've got a, a, an iPhone app called Seeing AI. Yes. Which I don't think was a formal project initially. It was one of the young Indian programmers was Skyping, I think, to his grandfather his grandfather couldn't recognize him anymore wow. and he went well this is crap what can i do with a few of my friends in a hackathon and i think seeing ai literally came out of a hackathon 
such a great thing. And all right, I think there's now a whole team on it. Yeah. Uh, and really, the point of assistive technology, adaptive technology, is it pushes development so much faster mm-hmm. that even if you do something for a small group of people and you go, well, where's the return? Well, the return is on you cleared so many you know, hedges, hurdles, so fast to make it work. That you know, In the case of seeing AI being able to take a photo of anything, extract the text out of it, describe the image, describe what's in the image, pull the colours out of the image, in the long run, that is probably going to help with things like self-driving cars. Yeah. That software is going to help the car go. Is that a person walking a push bike or is that a person riding a push bike? Is that push bike on the road or is it on the footpath? You know, it's going to help them assess, yes, there's a person on a push bike, but what's the contextual relationship? So for things that are meant to help blind people understand an image in front of them, and you know, it's such fun occasionally just standing at a, a bus stop and using an app like you know, Envision, which is a, you know, a Dutch small team version of seeing AI, in a lot of ways is actually a better product because it's a weird little bunch of enthusiasts and it's all they do. You know, Microsoft at a certain point, it went to the big team yeah. and development slows. Yeah. You know, the minute it has to deal with the hierarchy. But you know, the fun of just sitting at a bus stop, pulling my phone out, taking a photo of whatever's in front of me with one of those two apps and getting it to do the scene description. And month by month, seeing or hearing the quality of what it describes getting better and better. Now, I don't know if it's right because I can't see it, but the more detailed and interesting the description, the more entertaining it is. And at a certain point, it's going to go from being entertaining to genuinely being useful. Yeah. And that's probably only, I would guess, you know, 18 months, two years away from those images actually being useful. And I, I think it's fascinating. I sat on a, a panel um, recently with, or well, not recently, 12 months ago, with an amazing woman who had a child that was born who was severely um, disabled and, and she's now, she was a, a very senior at Google and left Google and started her own company and it was all around helping organisations understand how they can actually develop um, workplaces and design them to be more inclusive. Mm. And uh, one thing she said that just struck me at the core, she was like, if we just designed and developed things with um, basically for people with disabilities. Like if that was the approach, you know, it's like how do we make this as inclusive as possible? If we design it for people with disabilities, then it would be fine for everyone. Yeah, if you solve the big hurdle, yeah. everything after that is easy. And I was like, but it's so interesting because we're always about speed to market and, and mm. where's the mass market and how do we make as much money as quickly as possible? But I was like, it was just such a refreshing way to look at something. And she was talking about um, something as simple as a after she'd had her daughter and she went back to work, she had to... Um, pushed the, the front door open and it was this, you know, building with this huge, big, heavy door. Mm. And she said the first thing that happened as she walked up to that door, now having a daughter with a severe disability, was that she stood there and went, my daughter would never be able to open this door. Yeah. And so what does that say in terms of how you design things? And, yeah, as a parent, I, I can't tell you how that made me feel. I think anyone that's out there developing technology um, to enhance um, people's lives and their mobility uh, and their level of inclusiveness, I think – you know, it's the most admirable work you can do. It's amazing. These are the positive things that you're able to see in the position that you're in being so connected to the tech industry. But I know that you also commentate a little bit about on the fear mm. that some people have or at least maybe the unhealthy technolo- uh, unhealthy relationship people have with technology even presently. So could you walk us through why you've decided to have less engagement with social media or personal engagement, I mean? Yeah, I think that for every every exponential technology that comes out, there are unintended consequences. 
Yeah, so if every miracle we can create with technology, what I often observe is there is an equal terror that comes with it if it's if it falls into the wrong hands. And I think social media is probably an example of that. You know, it's it's been a brilliant way to connect people into communities and to things that they would love to have accessed that they couldn't access before. It's helped people who were lonely um, perhaps, you know, find ways to to better connect. Um, I've got a girlfriend who was extremely introverted and she said social media was an introvert's dream. And Mm. for me, that was really profound because it's given her a voice when previously she would never have stood in a public space, but now she's happy to stand on that platform and share her voice. So I think, you know, these are the beautiful things about social media, but I I think as time has gone on and, and, and what's happened is we've introduced something so significant and not given people any skills in how to self-regulate. And equally, we've also, we've introduced technology and the people that have designed this technology, you know, seem very admirable in saying we want to connect the world, but let's be (laughs) fucking honest. It's nothing to do with connecting Mm. the world. You know, the technology (laughs) is designed to distract people. Mm. They are that your attention is the most valuable commodity available at the moment. And, you know, to the point where companies like Netflix are now touting sleep as one of their biggest competitors because it's the only space left for attention. So I I have a massive issue with that. And, and the other thing, I suppose, with the work that I do and the reason that I have started to really practice, you know, this concept of digital minimalization is I do a lot of speaking in front of thousands of people and I cannot tell you how many parents come up to me and tell me I've got an eight-year-old with severe anxiety. I've got a 17-year-old who doesn't come out of her bedroom. Mm. You know, I've got a 15-year-old who sits on gaming all day long and he's severely depressed. This is not one or two examples. It's no, every it's time everywhere. I speak. No, I'm who will not be mentioned. Um, she actually is, is an educator and she had a student who was age six, had to go to therapy because was talking about wanting to kill herself yeah at, at, at six it just it boggles my mind this is part of the problem is the little screen mediates everything we think mm. but yes. for an underdeveloped brain, brain that can suddenly see the footage from the Christchurch shooting yeah 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 at six that's real mm. and that's not i'm watching it real that's that's all there is real so, you know, it's a little thing. It can't be bad. It's only in a hand. You can put it down. No, you can't. It's pretty. It's colourful. It always gives you something to do, somewhere to be, a way to define yourself. Again, before we turn the mics on, I was making the point, listeners, that 2012 was the year that undergrads changed because they were the first undergrads that had, you know, a touchscreen smartphone for all of high school and their attention span was shorter and their level of empathy was different and their way they interact with each other had changed. Now, pivot points are always artificial, but it's as good a one as any Mm. from pre-smartphone to post. And this is the problem. We unleashed multiple monsters simultaneously. Absolutely. If you look, Facebook and Twitter, I think we're probably only doing minimal harm when you had to go home and access them through your computer. Correct. Correct. But it was more regulated, yeah? You You had to go home and think what you wanted to say, download your photos and go, I'm going to put up the photos from the three hours of people time I had today and my people time wasn't interrupted by my little device going, look at me, look at me, look at me, share with me. Whereas now we're at look at me, look at me, look at me, share at me, diminishes people time, diminishes nature time. And I think more dangerously than anything, no one just sits and thinks anymore unless they're a philosophy major. (laughs) 
They go, oh, it's quiet. Where's it's my true. phone? And we ask, I mean, I ask that in, a, in so many of my talks. But, you know, the other thing is that the technology is like if you, anyone has got a kid, take a piece of tech away from a kid. Give a kid an iPad for five minutes and try and take it away. Oh, yeah. It is like crack. The way mm. that the brain responds and, and the people that are designing it know how to release dopamine. Mm. They design it for addiction. And, you know, what happens is your kid's behaviour changes. And so... I think all of this for me when I start to see it, and, and I also know that social media often doesn't, it, it really makes people happy. No. And so I was like, I can't sit here and talk about this stuff if I'm not going to put in place practices that are going to limit my use. Now, don't get me wrong, I still have a phone, I you know, I still use social media, but I'm at the point where I very rarely use Facebook. Mm. I probably look at Facebook once a month. Um, wow. I put some really strict controls in around when I access it. I don't access them from my phone. I, mm. Unless there's a particular event or something, that I need to capture. I, Instagram's not on my phone at all mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have any of those apps on my phone. And again, to, to David's point, that then forces me to schedule time to do it on my laptop, mm-hmm. which means that I don't do it as much. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is I didn't realise how much technology had disconnected me from my love of nature. Mm-hmm. And I think in the last sort of 18 months, I've really created space um, where we've not had technology for certain periods and created space to go out in nature and tried to get my son more engaged with nature, be it camping. We've just come back from trekking in Nepal in the Himalayas literally five days ago. So I've done this because one, I can't so to David's point, I can't get out there and talk about the stuff that I talk about that I believe so strongly in if I'm not living and breathing mm-hmm. it. And equally, to back to the original point, my son. Mm-hmm. How can I say to him, "Don't you're only allowed on the iPad one hour on a weekend or one hour on a Saturday unless and a Sunday? The unless I'm the same. Yeah. Again, the, the biggest things that little kids can read and 19-year-olds can read just as well is hypocrisy. Mm. Oh, yeah. You're right. I mean- you're absolutely right. And I think the thing for me is as well when – I mean, I've done a lot of reading. There's some brilliant work by a guy out there called Cal Newport out of the US. He's recently published a book called Digital Minimalization or Digital mm-hmm. Minimalism. He's also published previous to that a book about deep work. And to David's point earlier, it talks about the fact that, you know, we are now – we are wired for distraction. Mm-hmm. We've created a generation that knows nothing but a constant state of distraction. And the onflow is the effects of that in terms of these people doing deep focused work, deep thinking, the sort of thinking that leads to creativity, innovation, experimentation, you know, serious problem solving, we're diminishing that skill in bucket loads. Mm. I find that really scary because I don't think there's ever been a time in history where we need more deep thinking and more space to just just be and allow the dots to connect. And so reading Cal's work and then looking at how I can apply that in my life and use that to help others has been hugely powerful. Mm. I think that thing about deep thinking, an example from teaching in universities, there's always three groups in every room. Mm -hmm. The top of the room will be fine no matter what. Yeah. You try not to bore them. You try and give them enough to be interested and leave them alone. The bottom group are always stuffed. They don't know why they're there and they're not going to work it out fast enough before they've got a monumental debt. And then there's the group in the middle. And pre-2012, you could get the group in the middle moving so fast that they started snapping at the heels of the top group. So the top group really, really had to switch on rather than just keep coasting. Mm -hmm. Post-2012, the middle group keeps sinking lower and lower. Mm -hmm. So that even when you can affect them now, you can't get them anywhere near the top group. So it means the ones who are the natural creators, innovators, deep thinkers, 
don't move any faster than they want because their default setting already works. Mm. The middle group do better, but better doesn't get them close to the front of the pack. So they never get that thing of being in the race and feeling the wind you know, whip against their face because of the velocity they're moving at and get sucked in to the adrenaline of speed and the adrenaline of velocity. So you get the middle moving a bit more, but they don't then push the top and the top don't drag them along. So we're asking more now of less people than probably in the last 150 years. Because if we say that, you know, mass education began to grow, you know, industrial revolution, a few decades after, we put more and more people through school Mm. and it just keeps growing. Well, the irony now is we're putting nearly everyone through school, but not really getting much more back for the effort. (laughs) I would argue you're almost getting less back. Well, I don't want to be the one that says that, but I'll happily agree now you've said it. Yeah. I mean, I just <laughs> so think that universities... It's an ever-diminishing return yeah. on effort. Mm. Well, universities are facing the same challenges as large corporations. You know, they are struggling to remain relevant. Well, that's a fascinating thing with large corporations. If we look across the US, how many of them are creating their own internal education unit? Something that fundamentally is a minimal, highly focused, highly functional mm. university. And if we take someone like General Electric... If I wanted to be an engineer, I'd rather train inside the company than out of uni because mm. everything's going to be relevant. Everything's going to be streamlined. Everyone there wants to win but also recognises the best way to win is to work well in a team. So you have that whole thing of the very, very capable drag the people slightly below them, the people below switch on, which means you know they can push and everyone tries harder. And that's now starting to be in very specific environments rather than in general education environments, Mm -hmm. which is a real big problem because the tertiary section is huge and profoundly underperforms. Well, there's a reason why companies like General Assembly have gone from zero in the last seven years. I think there's something in something like that now 40 countries around the world. Um, teaching people future skills from a technology perspective. Yep. And, and and basically they can't get people through quick enough because they're all getting employed. Yep. Because what they're teaching is hands-on skills yep. um, and, and it's stuff that's in demand. Um, or in conjunction with how to work with strangers under pressure. Yeah. Because <laughs> it, it's a three-sided thing, technical skills, strangers, under pressure. Yeah, but you're, you're, that links back to your previous point, which I'd love to touch on around um, – you know, human connection and, and every digital connection comes at the compromise now of a human connection often, yeah? yeah, and and the default position for most people, especially the next generation, is if I have the choice of human or digital, I'll go digital because it makes me feel more comfortable. That's what I'm familiar with and, and I have a massive issue with this because mm-hmm. all the challenges that you're speaking about in terms of the skills that these people are not developing link back to actually the practice of human connection and, and human connection with random strangers. Absolutely. There's a wonderful book called Reclaiming Conversation by Sherry Turkle and she gives an example in the book of a law firm where one of the senior partners is walking around realising his recent hires are texting each other rather than talking to each other (laughs) because despite being the top 1% of law students in America, they're not comfortable talking to someone they don't know really well. (laughs) And he's like, what the hell? And they were our best pick? He goes and talks to HR and goes, HR go, yeah, they were our best pick. Yeah. <laughs> and this is not to say that people can't do it, but because we let them have the screen and the flashing pretty colours and the distraction time over people time and we didn't get them used to quiet time and we didn't get them used to uncomfortable time, we got what we made. So the big thing here, listeners, 
we ain't picking on people who don't have the skills. No. We're saying as a society, we failed to make sure people have the skills that would lead them to flourish and be calm and have low anxiety and to deal with fear positively. Yeah, but there's no self-regulation. People don't no. know. You have to teach self-regulation. Yeah. There's the irony. You can't self-regulate unless you're a weirdo like me who goes to a blind primary school and has the horrible realisation, if I don't cope, they'll try and help me. If they try and help me, I'll cope even less well. Simple <laughs> lesson, cope. Mm. Yeah. And how many people have done exactly that? Realised if in this environment you ask for help, the help isn't going to help. So switch on. Mm. I think a very big proportion of people who then can function well nearly anywhere because they've taken personal responsibility. Yeah, but I think it's hard switching off. It's harder to switch off than it is to switch your tech on. Because to your point, I think most of us now are not comfortable in stillness. Sitting no. alone with your own thoughts and actually connecting with how you're feeling is one of the biggest challenges that we find in the work that we do. Mm. People are afraid. They're afraid of the noise stopping because looking inwards is way harder than looking outwards. I reckon it was Daniel Leverton did an experiment where he said to people, you can either sit in the room in silence for 10 minutes or give yourself an electric shock and get out. Yes, I've looked at that yeah. and people it's chose to electrocute. I think it was like over 60% yeah, was, of people was, chose yeah, to electrocute it was themselves. nearly two-thirds opted to give <laughs> wow. themselves the shock wow. rather than to sit in silence. Yeah. And they built this great lab for it where they were totally soundproof rooms yeah. with incredibly boring paint. Nothing they did have the to walls. stop it though. They said it was unethical. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. Unethical? Yeah. Was it was like the 60s or 70s? Yeah. It was a while it was ago. A, oh no, well, it's been redone post 2000. Oh, that's so funny. Now they've redone it. Yeah. Because, People would rather shock themselves. Yeah, they'd rather shock themselves than sit alone with their own thoughts. Alone with their own thoughts. Uh, I want to I, I, I want to dig a little bit deeper on that because to me it's it's either I think there are either one or two solutions and we've kind of touched on them before a bit David. It's either that it's just a matter of discipline you have to pull yourself away from it or is it our is it our job as a society to present a choice that we have to make that turning off is actually a better option? Well, I'd argue this is where you apply um, Richard Thaler's book. I think it's Richard Thaler. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nudge. Put mm-hmm. the best option in front of people as the easiest option. Mm-hmm. So the classic thing in a school canteen is put the healthy food at eye height. Yeah. Put the horrendous lollies at foot height. Mm-hmm. You don't take the lollies away or they'll want them even more. But most people will take what's easily in front of them. So if what's easily in front of kids is PE is non-negotiable, it's about being physical, Mm. that some mindfulness practice within PE is unavoidable, that having to do art is unavoidable, that having to do biology or geography that actually means field trips right through to year 12 is unavoidable. So we have to take responsibility as a society for mandating a minimum chance of undoing the disaster okay, and then hope that enough people don't just do the minimum improvement but actually choose discipline on top of the minimum improvement. I'm a harsher critic than that. I've been advocating for a while. <laughs> I reckon the government should turn off the internet one day a week. Wow, that's cool. I reckon that would be the coolest thing. I mean, yeah, but people in my would be case, being a blind guy and using GPS, I'm going to have a tantrum because <sighs> you're going to take my navigation away. So I always I love you know, doing this with you know, uh, clients and holding my iPhone up and go, toy or tool? And there's a quiet snigger. Yeah. <laughs> and I go, okay, I'm going to tell you what I used my phone for today. Yeah. I used it to navigate to do this job. I've got all my notes on here. Mm. I'm keeping notes as to where the heck I'm going in this building so I don't get myself lost today on wow. here. I'm using the things like seeing AI to photograph signs near elevators to work out, you know, 
where am I going? What do I need to try and sort out? How do I get there? How do I do it without needing a sighted person? Now, what have you lot done with your phones today? Mm. And just shame them into the realization that it's a tool. They turned it into a toy. So just turn tools back into tools. Did they turn it into a toy or was it mother and father too busy to play with their kids so they put an iPad in front of them? Yeah, but we've got a generation of parents raised in front of TVs. Yeah, okay. So when they were the just norm. as addicted yeah, as kids. Yeah. <laughs> when, when's the last time there was a generation of kids who didn't have a screen? You know, the boomers had TV in the 50s. Again, this is a slippery slope. We had no idea how extreme it was going to be. Yeah, okay. So, you know, to blame a parent for you gave your kid an iPad. No. Sorry, I, I hope that didn't come across like, no, no, a, no. like that. It's not, but that's the point. It could easily, you know, like when we were talking about the election the other day, it's easy to start blaming rather than understanding. <laughs> and what we need to do is understand that we didn't get here through one generation of poor decisions. No. We got here of three generations of self-absorption grew gradually. The need to only show the good bits grew gradually. The need to not sit, well, the inability to sit quietly grew gradually. Mm. All these things have grown into the danger zone, you know, like mould. Mm. There's a little dot of it and it grew. But that's where I think, you know, so much of the work that we've done, the, the realisation for me was that, you know, it's just, we're very good at adapting, especially when it's unconscious. Mm. Yeah, it kind of creeps us up on us over time. And when I started reading um, about this concept of an adaptability quotient, I was like, well, and, you know, Harvard's saying it was the new competitive advantage, more important mm. than EQ and IQ in the context of the future. I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, but there's something missing to me because we we don't have a problem with people adapting unconsciously and where they do, the on-flow effects in terms of mental health and so on is significant. The problem we have is putting intentionality mm. at the forefront of that adaptability and teaching people how to be intentional in the way that they change. That's where the real opportunity lies. And that's why we went and renamed a global term because I was like, well, AQ on its own is, is a real problem. Mm. We need to teach people, you know, self-regulation is intentional adaptability. It's mm. what's the intent of the action that I want to undertake? Like how do I bring purpose and meaning to my decision-making again in every state of my being throughout a day. This is part of the thing with anxiety and depression and stuff now. If people don't learn to regulate fast enough that I want meaning in my life or well, the easiest way to get meaning is to be able to self-regulate so that you can do things that have meaning. Mm. If you can't self-regulate, you don't get organised early enough in the day to get things done that are meaningful. Yeah. You constantly scrabble. So self-regulation is such a simple thing. You know What the psychs often just call impulse control. Impulse control sounds so boring. And yet, if you have impulse control, you go, I can do the boring thing now because later I get something really good as a consequence. Mm. Or I should. Eat your frogs first. Have you, there's a book <laughs> called Eat Your Frogs yeah, First. I think, you know? I, I think Amy Chua talks about it in one of her videos. Yeah, I, I remember coming across it and going, no, that sounds like ranger training. It you sounds know, there's gross. A, there's but- a period in Georgia <laughs> where they live on frogs for about a week. You live on what you can catch. <gasps> Yuck. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay, so intentional adaptability quotient. So you'll, you'll talk about that a fair bit in your speaking rounds. Mm. So this is perhaps the gleaming light at the end of your tunnel. Gleaming light at the end? Well, no, because like, I, I I don't believe in silver bullets, you know. Silver bullets okay. are bullshit. I don't, anyone that says to you, oh, I've got the solution for the future and here it is, I yeah. mean, if you're sitting there going, you're yeah, right, what are you? Jesus, you know, <laughs> intention- or the singularity. 
In, for me, intentional adaptability is providing people with a set of foundational skills that enable them to create the space to work out what matters and then basically um, employ practices and habits that enable them to effectively navigate the future in a way that makes sense for them. Hmm. Yeah, and so intentional adaptability from a foundational perspective, the way that we've designed it has been off the back of experimentation with thousands of people. And and what we've discovered is kind of the three core elements of it as we see it. Given we're, we're starting with basics because the problem is we don't have the basics, is the first thing we teach people is how to focus in a world that's designed to distract them. How do you create the space to work out what matters and then focus your brain on how to realise that? Yeah, it's not rocket science. The second thing we teach after we enable people to focus and actually remove this phenomenon of busy, which we believe is bullshit, yet we then teach them how to be courageous. How do you use fear and failure to actually create the change that you want? Because the reality is without courage, you cannot make change. Yeah, and then once we've helped them, so we've helped them deal with focus, yeah, or distraction, we've helped them deal with fear, then we give them the reward. And, and funnily enough, the reward is we teach them how to be curious. Now, you may think this is crazy because curiosity is an innately human skill set. Go and hang out with a child. A child, is it's within you. You are born with yeah, it. Yeah, but school will beat it out of them. Correct. But we condition people over time and we significantly diminish their level of curiosity because if you're curious, you're not conforming. Mm. You're seen as a hand grenade thrower. You know, disrupting, you're slowing things down. But the reality is we need people to disrupt. We need them to challenge the status quo. And so we start to teach them curiosity is a state of being rather than something you do when you have spare time. <laughs> and we talk about, which of which we know people have none, right? So how do you be curious in the everyday? And the other thing is what we've found is that most people's definition of curiosity is very narrow, mm. yeah? And the other thing is that most people, if you ask them how curious they are, they will rate themselves through the roof. Mm. And so when we define curiosity and we teach it, we talk about it in the context of curious about the world, curious about yourself and curious about others. Yeah, so it's kind of, you know, it's, it's three-dimensional. Mm. Um, and when we kind of shine that lens on it and we, and we start to help people unpack, hang on, you said you're a highly curious person, but when we ask you how often you surprise yourself and you said never in the last six months, if you're a curious person and you're not surprising yourself, something's wrong. Mm. Yeah, mm. so um, we kind of teach people how to be curious in the everyday again because if you're not curious, one, you won't change. Um, two, I would argue you won't grow. And three, it's highly unlikely that you are going to be able to innovate at the level that you have the potential to. Mm. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, to say, it's not rocket science. These, mm. And, and we, what we found with intentional adaptability is this is the foundation. I actually think that there are many layers um, in terms of levels that we'll be able to teach people, mm -hmm. but we are so low in the foundations. Yeah, that's a problem. So just the thing of focus, you realise, and this is what I was saying so quietly, just going, to what level do you have to rewire mm. a 19-year-old who now has had a smartphone since they were 10? Yeah, they've got neuroplasticity. Correct. Their but, brains are wired but, differently. But their, you know, their brain is literally wired mm -hmm. differently. And you're not just trying to say focus because you've got a neutral brain that you can get there quickly. You're actually needing to double down on discipline practice to change Neural pathways. And practice is the word. So yeah. we talk about intentional – well, the way I, I – I'm a, a yogi. I love yoga. 
And so is David. Yeah. They, and, and, Happy well, yogis together. Yeah. And so we talk about intentional adaptability like yoga. It's mm. a practice, right? So some days you're going to have shit days. But you do it anyway. Yeah. And some days you're going to have great days. Like I, I've been on a mat now for seven years and mm. I have some days where I'm like, wow, how the hell did I do that? And then other days I'm like, I'm crap. Mm. We give people practices that if they choose to employ them on a daily basis, their intentional adaptability will grow over time. Yeah. But the reality is it is a journey. It is an evolution. It's not an end state. It never is. I don't think you can ever be at 100%, you know. Um, well, you shouldn't try and do anything at 100%. It's that classic thing, yeah, you should practice at about 90 yeah. so that you can actually perform at 70. Mm. Mm. And that's one of those things that people don't get. Under stress, your performance is going to go down, not up. And if we could see what people did in their practice, the practice is infinitely better than the final performance. You know, when I used to be a violinist, rehearsals of a concerto were always better than the performance. But the practices were so bloody good, it was all right that it fell down. It's not a problem. It was that, that, that the whole theory of 1% better. If you look at, you know, I think there was the, the English bike team. Oh, my God. Oh, oh, marginal, marginal gains. gains. Yeah. yeah you know, where they basically looked at what if we made every aspect of what they do just 1% better? Mm. What's, what's the impact of that? And then they ended up being one of the best teams yeah. in the yeah. world. See, yeah, I wrote an article a couple of years ago arguing the opposite, that what we're really suffering from more than anything in our world is marginal losses. Most things aren't terrible. They're just slightly annoying or slightly time-wasting. Yeah. But everything we interact with is slightly annoying or slightly time-wasting. So by the 10th slightly annoying and slightly time-wasting thing we've encountered before lunch, it's like, fuck it. <laughs> I'm not in this anymore. Mm. My head is not in the game anymore. I don't care about this system anymore. The outcome, as long as it is just over the quality bar, superb is no longer an option. Yeah, but that's that was a great metaphor for voting on Saturday, right? Yeah. It's, you're getting pissed off because you're sitting there for 30 minutes. You're not, you haven't got a sausage. Yeah. Like. Yeah. It's just a no win. <laughs> but the whole point is you know, marginal, most of what we encounter today, individual systems aren't terrible. They're just not effective and i think one of the fastest ways i can perceive to get people to switch on and be more effective is to take responsible for fixing one marginal loss hmm. find one tiny thing in your world that if you asked they'd let you fix and fix it i like that because the whole thing of getting people to focus um, you know as long as you're in people's face you can get them to focus but most people again because you were you know you're dealing with neural experience that says where's my phone 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 that's a lot to compete with yeah but that's why i think the way that we teach is what we call experiential learning and basically the elements of the experiential learning link back to teaching self accountability yeah teaching human human connection learning through human connection experimentation and then reflection and what we've done now is i have a lot of clients saying to me oh can you come in and can you fix you know can we make people intentionally adaptable tomorrow and i everything that we teach around those three pillars that i mentioned we run challenges and most of the challenges run for a month to six weeks because it takes that long for anything to settle correct because we're shifting mindsets and behaviors and unless you actually create the space for people to go out experiment practice bring it back in the room talk about how hard it was yeah and then go back out and try again and bring them back again they won't and the other thing is that we know that most people won't change unless it's painful like unless like to your point most things are are not great but they're not 
bad enough for people to, to do something about it. They're just it. uncomfortable. Correct. And yeah. so most people won't get off their ass and do anything. Yeah. Apparently there's, there's, there's some statistic that says unless what you have to gain is twice what you're going to lose – People won't do squats. See, the wow. other interesting thing too, um, there's a public health guy, a guy called Vic Stretcher who really picked up Victor Frankl's thing of, you know, we have to have meaning in our lives, you know, sort of Frankl's classic things of love, work and suffering. Mm. You know, that's what I mean. Vic Stretcher has taken that into public health. And one of the most interesting things from his initial research in the 1990s, you can talk to someone until you're blue in the face, stop smoking. If it's about them, they won't. The minute you change it to do you want your kids to have a parent, they'll stop smoking. Mm. So a big thing about getting change is anyone who is socially connected and cares about other people is easier to move because they want to do it for the benefit of other people that they care about. The difficult thing is if you're in an environment where no one values the group and the organisation and the society anymore yeah. and we're becoming so atomised as a society that there's a great risk that excluding the family and immediate friends we can't get people to recognise the value for the people they care about on a big enough scale mm. to get change. Because that's the thing, you know, in an environment where people see each other every day, you've got a degree of being able to alter their behaviour because they can hold each other to account. From a Foucauldian perspective, you know, there's surveillance and surveillance leads to, you know, self-regulation and normalisation of whatever patterns of behaviour that that group say is normal. But if you don't have that tribe that you watch them and they watch you. And the problem with the people on the screens is they've got a tribe of sorts, but it's a tribe that doesn't surveil anything meaningful and won't hold them to account on anything meaningful. So working with a team where you can sit with the team for a whole day and then go back and revisit them in a month is great because you know that team is together five days a week. Mm. And that if they're a good team and their bosses have invested in trying to change them for the good, there's at least two levels of surveillance. So the terrible thing here is you can go with goodwill or you can use surveillance, and I'm all for using surveillance because <laughs> it works better. Mm. Mm. Yeah, goodwill is warm and fuzzy. It's yeah. nice, but it doesn't actually work. Being a pioneer in working on intentional adaptive quotient, is that how you got to the Singularity University or what got you to this interesting place? Yeah, probably about... 18 months ago now, I came across a woman out of New Zealand called Kayla, Kyla Colbin and I saw her speak and she spoke about this university called Singularity University that I'd never heard of and she spoke about how she'd gone and done their executive program and it had fundamentally changed her life and her perspective and she was talking a lot about the future and how far advanced technology was and she was so passionate that she decided to bring Singularity um, University Summit to Sydney for the first time and after I saw her speak I was like oh my god I need to be at this summit this this is totally up my alley I was just so curious so I made a huge investment for as a startup and and bought my ticket and off I went and they bought out some of the the best speakers from um Silicon Valley um where they have uh, a base at NASA and uh I was just blown away I was like there is so much in this so at the same time, I was starting to evolve the, the concept of intentional adaptability and we were doing a lot of experimentation with that. And so after going to the summit, I decided to apply for their executive program, seriously, as a bit of a joke, because I thought, there's no way I'm ever going to get into this. This, you know, this program is for, you know, leaders of influence around the world. And 
lo and behold, a month later, I got an email saying you've been accepted. And I was like, oh, it must have been a slow month. So, <laughs> so I get there and it turned out I was wrong because a lot of the people that were there had actually been rejected and had applied multiple times before they got in. And the people that were there, it was like 80 senior leaders, vice presidents, CEOs of some of the biggest companies in the world. I just couldn't believe I was in the company of these people. And I spent six days with the top AI and tech innovators in the world being having my mind blown. And I was just sitting there going, um, all the questions I asked were from a human perspective because what happened, Singularity was brilliant at telling us how far advanced technology was and and where it was going and where it was heading. But we had all these leaders in the room that were sitting there going, yeah, but we've got a fundamental problem with our people being able to adapt to the pace and scale of change. Um, and I was asking all these questions in how are we actually going to humanise this future? How are we going to help people bring intention and meaning to the way that we create and engage with technology? How are we going to overlay the ethical piece? How are we going to regulate this? And I think because all the questions um, I had came from a very different angle, at the end of the program, um, a lot of the um, the leaders there were very interested in what I was doing because uh, I don't think they'd ever had a happiness hacker at Singularity. It's mm-hmm. probably why I got the ticket in. And so I started to have a number of phone conferences when I got back with different leaders and they said, we want you to come and share the work you're doing around intentional adaptability uh, to be considered to um, join our faculty, which I couldn't believe. Cause it, and so I was like, hell yes. So I had no idea what I was going to speak about and lo and behold, uh, two months ago I went back and I did my presentation and the talk was called The Busy Shall Inherit the Future, The Intentionally Adaptable Will Shape It. Mm-hmm. And I spoke about the busy epidemic. Uh, and and how that was actually holding uh, holding us back, and why intentional adaptability was so important, regardless of what age you were at. And within uh, two hours of leaving that building, they sent me an email saying, "We want you to join us as a guest lecturer." Mm. And that was how I ended up at Singularity. So I'm kind of now at the beginning of what that looks like, which is, you know, um, speaking at their executive programs uh, in uh, in Moffat Field over in Silicon Valley, um, joining global summits around the world as an expert um, on intentional adaptability. So, yeah, it's it's a very exciting opportunity. No kidding. Far out. Well. We know that you're having a very positively occupied flyby through <laughs> Adelaide and we know that you have to get to other places. So the last thing that I'm just going to ask you is if you could please give our listeners uh, an update about why they should stop saying that they're busy. <laughs> what I do now is I challenge people to um, to take on the, the one week busy equals bullshit challenge. Yeah. So 18 months ago um, I decided to stop using the word busy because It seemed to me that everyone was using it and it seemed to be creating a lot of angst and overwhelm. And I thought, I'm just going to see what happens. So I stopped using busy when people asked me how I was as a default position. And instead I started using the word positively engaged or positively occupied. And it was pretty profound in terms of the impact that it had really quickly. So first and foremost, what I realised is as someone who's not overly anxious, when I stopped using the word busy all the time, it was amazing how much noise it reduced in my head. If you tell yourself you're busy, yet you are cr- busy perpetuates busy and you will create a lot of noise in your head unnecessarily. So there's not a lot of free space. The second thing was when I didn't say I was busy and I said I was po- positively occupied or engaged, people started to say to me, like their mouths would drop and they say, well, what the hell are you doing? Because they were expecting me to say busy. Mm. And I would say my life is full, but I'm doing things that I love. And they were like, then they were like, well, what the hell are you doing? And so it would open up a whole a new conversation with depth to it. And I think that there's such a shortage of conversations that have depth 
these days. So the level of connection that I was building with people um, was, was fantastic. And the third thing was that it started to challenge me. So by not saying busy and saying I was positively engaged, I had to call bullshit on myself because if I wasn't positively engaged, I had to start asking you myself, your own why the hell am I doing yeah. what I'm doing? And so I would actually challenge other people when they were like, that's really interesting that you're saying that. I'd say, I want you to use it. So for one week, stop saying busy and swap it out. For, you can use positively engaged, whatever works for you, but use something that's positive. And just watch what's ha- what happens. And if you find you're saying I'm positively engaged and you're not, then call bullshit on yourself and ask yourself why you're doing what you're doing. And it just brings consciousness back into the state of mind. And so um, that's why I don't use the word busy and that's why I now challenge people to stop using it. Because the only way you're going to create the space for more of what matters in your life is by not... You don't need more in every day. Yeah? You don't need to fill every minute of every day. I actually think people need to do a lot less, but more of what matters. Mm. It's interesting. I had an honest supervisor, Paul Nursey Bray, who would never ask people, how are you? Because he realized most people don't answer honestly yeah. and most people don't want to know. No. So Paul's thing was, what are you doing? And he used to stop people dead. I love that. Because they had to come up with a legit answer. And I love just pulling it out periodically to deliberately weird people out because it does make people so uncomfortable. Not the normal stuff of the movie. How are you? How are you? Blah, blah, blah. Just walk up. Hi. What are you doing? And then listen mm. to the silence as the gears in their head spin. Or what's your purpose for today? Yeah. You know, that's a good one for yeah. freaking people out too. That's it. Yeah. All right, Penny. Uh, I'm, I'm sure our listeners uh, like myself have gonna, are going to find that there's a lot of patterns in what you talk about and, and perhaps what we talk about on, on our podcast here. So we would encourage our listeners to go and check out your podcast, which is Human First uh, with Penny Lacasso, uh, the happiness hacker. So thank you very much for uh, for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank we'll, you, Penny. Yeah. Thanks for having me, David. You've helped me look at the world through a different lens. So thank you. It's a gift. Hey, it was fun. <laughs> Hello listeners, if you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out. Listener.